Wow. Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, hello, church. I am really excited to be speaking to you here today. So let's get to it. I was trying to figure out what to speak about to you all. And so I looked at what our last, what my last message was, and I spoke about purpose and identity. Who you are and what you're doing. And the sort of crux of the message was that the Bible is consistent throughout telling us what our purpose and identity is, to fill the earth with the representation of God. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are God's representative. And secondly, is to be that representative. So as I was analyzing and thinking about what to come up with next and praying about it, the question kept coming up in my mind, why then do we fail? So that's what we're going to talk about. Our church is going through the F260 plan. We are reading through the Bible. Right now, we have just started the story of David. And I hope you're excited about that, church, because I love the story of David. He, I would even go as far as to say, if you don't know the story of David, you really should, if you appreciate stories at all, regardless of whether or not you're a religious person, because the story of David is second only to the story of Jesus Christ in how powerful of a message it is. And it contains drama and warriors coming to battle and spiritual victories. It is an awesome story. But today I'm going to kind of talk about the end of David's life. But in order to do that, i got to kind of go over who David was. So I'm going to spoil a little bit of the story. So, who was David? Well, if you don't know anything about the Bible, you still have probably heard the story of David and Goliath. But... I think if you're going to introduce somebody, it might be good to start. How do we introduce each other today, right? How often do we start? We start with our titles, right? And the Bible has quite a few different titles for people, pretty, some pretty amazing titles, actually. In Isaiah, it calls Abraham the friend of God. Wow. Later in Job... God himself describes Job as a righteous man. In fact, he brags to Satan about Job being righteous. That's pretty amazing, right? But David, I think, has one of the most amazing titles ever. You see, the Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart. Think about that for a moment. How awesome is that title? Even if you don't believe in God, you come up to somebody and you say, hey, you represent the creator and the master of the universe. 
you have the heart of the wisest, strongest, most powerful being who has ever come to existence and also the representative of grace and love. Wow, that is quite the title. So that's kind of who David was. But to describe more of it, here is the story of David and Goliath. So if you, if you don't know the story of David and Goliath, Goliath comes up. Goliath is a giant, and he's threatening the Israelites. He comes up and taunts them, and the whole Israelite army is scared. And this 14-year-old boy comes up and says, well, I'll fight him. And the whole army is kind of like, what are you talking about? But they let him do it. And so David comes up against this giant, and this is what he says. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head. And I will give you the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all the assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by the sword or the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. That's who David was. Fearless. He believed in God. And this, this pattern repeats itself all throughout David's story. And again, I just encourage you to read it and really spend time on it because it is awesome. The person we learn to know about who David is, is he is a man of God. He's a chosen leader. He's given the Spirit. And he had a very close relationship with God. In many ways, David is sort of in my mind, he's kind of the ideal Christian. Because if you look at these things, that's us. Or it's supposed to be, isn't it? If you believe in God, this is, this is what being a Christian means. But like I said, we're going to kind of look at the end of David's life today and like all people, David had some struggles. And so today we're going to focus on 2 Samuel 13. Really, we're going we're to go between 12 and all the way to 16, so have your Bibles ready. But we're going to focus on 13 for starters. So I'm going to give you a little bit of the background for 13. So, like I said, this is near the end of David's life. He is the king of the United nation of Israel. David's enemies are fleeing, the riches are growing, and by all accounts, Israel is about to enter a new golden age. The promises of God are going to be manifest. In David's time, he started this, sorry, the kingdom of Saul, 
and he has doubled it in this time. But everything is not absolutely fine in the house of David. Like many fathers who were busy, it seems that David has neglected his family. And so today we're going to focus a little bit on David's family. Like many men, David had many wives, right? The Bible does not encourage this. In fact, it speaks very much against it, but many kings at the time failed to follow this. So David had many wives and many sons and daughters. Today we're going to focus on these. Specifically, 2 Samuel 13 starts out with the son Amnon. So, who is Amnon? Amnon is the oldest son of David, and he is the heir apparent to the kingdom. So we don't know a lot about who Amnon is, but we get a little bit of a picture from him in 2 Samuel 13, 1 through 15. Like I said, he was the heir apparent. He is the son of the most powerful man in the known world. He is rich and he is powerful and his authority is often not around. And like so often happens with prosperous people and especially the sons and daughters of prosperous people, Amnon started to want the things that he could not have. Because everything else was given to him, he started, his desires started to increase. And unfortunately, I'm going to spare you a lot of the details in the early opening parts of the Bible here, but I recommend you read it. Amnon, the thing that he wanted was his half-sister, Tamar. And what unfolds now in the early parts of 2 Samuel 13 is a conspiracy um, where Amnon gets what he wants. And it's brutal. And when he's finished, Amnon, the, in 2 Samuel 13, 15, it says that Amnon hated And said, get away from me. Get out. Funny how sin does that. But Amnon was not very good at covering his tracks. In fact, the Bible doesn't say anything about how he even tried to cover his tracks. And so it wasn't long before David heard about this. And so now David is faced with a very difficult decision. Okay. Remember, David is the chosen representative of God. He has the Holy Spirit. And all throughout his life, David has done an excellent job of following through on what the Lord wants. So, put yourself in David's shoes here. You have a daughter who was violated. What would you do? Well, it's certainly a difficult situation. 
but some decisive action must be taken. Because the whole world is looking at David and his response. Because again, he is the representation of God. So what does David do? Nothing. David does nothing. Why? Well, part of why is what he did previously. So two chapters beforehand in 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 27, David committed a great sin. You've heard of Bathsheba. David took a wife that was not his. He was staying home. His armies were out campaigning, and there was a beautiful woman. He saw her, and he wanted her, and he took her. And she was married to one of David's soldiers, a man who David trusted, and this man trusted David. And as things do happen, Bathsheba got pregnant. And so David had committed a sin, and next he tries to cover it up. And there's a whole conspiracy that sort of goes through with this. But that fails, and so next David murders Bathsheba's husband, his friend. And he takes Bathsheba as his own wife. In 2 Samuel eleven twenty six through 27, we see this. Now, when the wife of Uriah, that is Bathsheba, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. So David thought he got away with it. But he didn't. <laughs> Johnny Cash song comes to mind. So the prophet Nathan comes to David and tells him a story. They are meeting, they're sitting there meeting together and prophets do what prophets do. Nathan tells him this. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. He stole the poor man's sheep, who was like a daughter to him, and prepared it instead. Now, David, historically, is a extremely calm person. He does not read through the story of David. He does not take revenge. But here, this is David's reaction. David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, 
Surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must take restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Interesting. It's funny. I'll point this out real quick. So often, sins that we are guilty of are the things that we are most passionate about. Do you find that to be true? Funny how that works in our minds. So now Nathan stands up from his, from his seat, and he pokes David in the chest, and he says, David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you to your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you so many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. So what does David do? Oh, got ahead of myself. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Wow. So how does David react? Well, David, miraculously, he throws himself at the feet of God and begs for forgiveness. If you Psalm 51 is David's prayer to God, asking for forgiveness for what he's done. And it is an amazing prayer. And what does God do? Well, we read in the next verse, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. David was a man of God. He had the Holy Spirit. He was a powerful warrior and king, and he was forgiven. So then, if David was forgiven, he has this pattern of, of forgiveness over and over. This was not the first time David screwed up. But he was forgiven. And up till this point, David acted like he was forgiven. Why then? Did David do nothing? Well, that's not the end of the story. You see, over time, I think David began to believe the lie. Let's go forward a little bit more. So, 2 Samuel 13, 22. Now we're going to talk about another one of David's sons. This is the son Absalom. This is the second youngest son and the brother of Tamar. We don't know a lot about Absalom again. What we do know is that he was extremely handsome. This is not a picture of Absalom, but this is the closest I could find him. I uh, pulled a Pastor Jim. Oh, that's okay. Um, um, in fact, he was so handsome that he had this long hair. My mom loves long hair. And they had a special ceremony during the sheep shearing 
where all the ladies would gather around and they would watch and swoon as they cut Absalom's hair. Right? So we know he was extremely handsome and very and obviously very popular based on what happens next. So that's who Absalom is. Again, I want to put you in the shoes of Absalom. Your sister is violated, and your father, the man who is in charge of justice, does nothing. What do you do? Well, Absalom started a conspiracy of his own. And we read later in 2 Samuel, he came to the king and said, Behold, now your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, we should not all go, for we will be burdensome to you. Although he urged him, he would not go, but blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But when Absalom urged him, he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, saying, See now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear. Have I not myself commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. That sounds familiar. These servants of Absalom, Absalom did do to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded them. Then all the king's sons arose and each mourned, mounted his mule and fled. Here's what's going on. Absalom sets up a conspiracy, lures in Amnon, gets him drunk for a party, and as Absalom is sitting there with his arms folded at the table, he gives the signal, and his servants come up and kill Amnon. This information spreads pretty quickly. David hears about it, and now David is faced with, again, another decision. Now, not only does he have a violated daughter, but he also has a murdered son. Now, before, the decision was difficult. But now, the decision is clear. What must be done? It is a hard decision. But David, as the chosen representative of God, must act. So what does he do? Nothing. In fact, we read that the heart of David longed to go out to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. So now David's, basically David is hoping that it's all going to blow over now. Why? Well, we learn a little bit later that it didn't blow over. We read in chapter 14 and 15 that Absalom's hatred only grew. And as David, a drama kind of happens between David and Absalom where David kind of comes and sort of reconciles, but it doesn't really go through. And Absalom never forgives him. 
and the hatred grows and grows until Absalom enacts a coup and steals the kingdom from David. So now, once again, David is on the run, out in the wasteland, running while his son, now the usurper king, hunts him. You see, David did not act. He allowed the shame to stop him, and it prevented him from doing what needed to be done, even though he was forgiven. Now, there's some more evidence of this. In chapter 16, 5 and 6, David is out in the wilderness. He's riding with his, the men who are still loyal to him, and they're trying to figure out what to do, trying to make a battle plan, trying to see if they can retake the kingdom. And who should show up but a family member of Saul? He crawls up over the valley. He stands up, and this drama unfolds. King David came to Bahurim. Behold, there came out there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerah. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of the king. And all the people and the mighty men were at his right and at his left. Thus, Shimei said when he cursed, get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, you worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. David's right-hand man is riding alongside him. And this David's reaction here says a lot. So Abishai is sort of one of David's special ops guys. He's a serious warrior, and David relies on him to do a lot of really amazing things. Again, please read the story. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go up there, and I'll cut off his head. But the king said, what I have to do with you, O son of Zariah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Behold, my son came out from me and seeks my life. How much more now, this Benjaminite, leave him alone, let him curse, for if for the Lord has told him, perhaps the Lord will look upon my affliction and return good to me instead of cursing this day. This is a lie. Shimei is blaming David for Saul, which was not David's fault. And then he's calling David the usurper king. Right? This is a lie. In fact, it is part of the lie. And like any good lie, it contains truth. And also, like any good lie, it is designed to separate us from God's forgiveness. And it comes in many forms. You are worthless. You are a sinner. 
you can't stop now. Not after what you have done. These are parts of the lie. But it's more than that. How does the world fight this lie? Well, walk into any bookstore and you'll see exactly how the world fights the lie. It tells, the, it tells you to stomp your foot and say, no, I am valuable. I have worth. By the right of my existence, I have decided that I am valuable. And what is good and evil anyway? Why should I feel bad about what I've done? That's just a bunch of rules that people in power have just made up so that they can stay in power. Here's what the world says. You deserve better. Look at any marketing campaign. Look at, read any self-help book. And it says this. This is the punchline. How's that working out? Well, but we're the church, right? So how do we fight this lie? Well, we're forgiven, right? If I come to you and I, we're in church here right now. If I come to you and I say, hey, do you believe you're forgiven? What do you think? Yes. I would hope yes. If you are a Christian, and I say, do you believe you're forgiven, what do you say? Yes. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We're forgiven. So do we believe that? Really? Does shame come to you and tell you the things that you have done prevent you from acting? Does it stop you from doing what's right because of the things you've done in your past? Because you're worried about being a hypocrite, because you're worried about whatever it is. This is especially true if you grew up in the church. We have a lot of this built up over time. You know, one of the things that Christians will say a lot is this. I know I am, I know that God has forgiven me. I just need to forgive myself. Have you heard that before? <laughs> yeah? Maybe you're even guilty of saying it. I am. Well, what does this mean when we say this? What are we saying? I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And that's nice and all, but I'll decide when I'm really forgiven. Can I tell you, church, you are not the arbiter of your forgiveness. In fact, let me just tweak this a little bit more. I will decide when I am forgiven. I am the God of my own salvation. That is the lie. It's the original lie. I will become God. And it's the same lie. The shame that we feel when we say, I just don't know, I don't think I can be forgiven. 
for the things that I've done. I, I, God's grace is so strange to me, I don't get it. True. <laughs> but when you say, I don't think I can be forgiven, what you're really saying is, I don't deserve to be forgiven. And that is absolutely correct. You do not deserve to be forgiven. It is a free gift. That is what grace is. We do not deserve any of this. If you know Jesus, you are forgiven. Forgiven. Everyone's, you know, I mean, we all love Romans 8. So, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you believe that? Then act like it. Act like it. Because if we believe we're forgiven, then we're going to act like we are free. Right? We won't let shame prevent us from the things that need to be done. You are a saint, Christian. And I think so often we let shame build up in our lives and it stops us from doing what needs to be done and we start believing the lie. I got to do something. No, God can't use me. I'm just going to sit here in my box, come to church on Sundays and, you know, I'll have a good family and, you know, maybe things will be okay, right? This is freedom. We are called to freedom. And if you don't know this freedom, then I encourage you to investigate Jesus Christ. Because you know it in your hearts, family. You are not worthy. And nothing you do, no matter how hard you stomp your foot and demand worth, try to put the blinders on, close your eyes, and convince yourself that, no, I will earn my salvation. I will do something to make myself okay. I will just decide that I'm okay. In your heart, you know you are condemned. You know your heart. But there is freedom in Jesus. A free gift. The only possible way that we could be given it. Galatians 5.1 says this. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Do not be subject to your shame. 
Do not be subject to sin in any form. If you are sinning today, caught in some kind of habitual sin, recognize that you are free. Because this kind of shame doesn't start from something, it's not something that just begins in one action. This is a long process where this shame builds up in your heart. Believe that you are 